Part Three of Lord Tedrick by E. E. Doc Smith. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Lord Tedrick, Part Three. Tedrick went forthwith to the castle and got a chunk of raw, massy gold. He took it to his shop and tried to work it into the thin, smooth film he could visualize so clearly. And tried, and tried, and tried. And failed, and failed, and failed. He was still trying, and still failing, three weeks later. Time was running short. The hours that had formerly dragged like days now flew like minutes. His crew had done their futile best to help. Benden, his foreman, was still standing by. The king was looking on and offering advice. So were Rowan and Tracy. Skyro and Schillen and other more or less notable persons were also trying to be of use. Tedrick, strained and tense, was pounding carefully at a sheet of his latest production. It was a pitiful thing, lumpy in spots, ragged and rough, with holes where hammer had met anvil through its substance. The smith's left hand twitched at precisely the wrong instant, just as the hammer struck. The flimsy sheet fell into three ragged pieces. Completely frustrated, Tedrick leaped backward, swore fulminantly, and hurled the hammer with all his strength toward the nearest wall. And in that instant there appeared, in the now familiar cage-like structure of shimmering, interlaced bars, the form of flesh that was Losir the god. High in the air, directly over the forge, the apparition hung, motionless and silent, and stared. Everyone except Tedric gave homage to the god, but he merely switched from the viciously corrosive Devosian words he had been using to more parliamentary Lomarian. "'Is it possible, Lord Sir, for any human being to do anything with this foul, slimy, salvy, perverse, treacherous, and generally bedamned stuff?' It is, definitely. Not only possible, but fairly easy and fairly simple, if the proper tools, apparatus, and techniques are employed. Losir's bell-toned organ pseudo-voice replied, Ordinarily, in your lifetime, you would come to know nothing of gold leaf, although really thin gold leaf is not required here, nor of gold-beater skins and membranes and how to use them, nor of the adhesives to be employed and the techniques of employing them. The necessary tools and materials are, or can very shortly, be made available to you. You can now absorb quite readily the required information and knowledge. For this business of beating out gold leaf, your hammer and anvil are both completely wrong. Listen carefully and remember. For the first, preliminary thinning down, you take... Lomar's army set out at dawn. First, the wide-ranging scouts, lean, hard, fine-trained runners, stripped to clouts and moccasins and carrying only a light bow and a few arrows apiece. Then the hunters. They, too, scattered widely and went practically naked. But bore the hundred-pound bows and the savagely tearing arrows of their trade. Then the heavy horse, comparatively few in number, but of the old blood all, led by Tedric and Skyro and surrounding glittering Fagon and his standard-bearers. It took a lot of horse to carry a full-armored knight of the old blood, but the horse-farmers of the middle marches bred for size and strength and stamina. 
Next came century after century of light horse, mounted swordsmen and spearmen and javelineers, followed by even more numerous centuries of foot-slogging infantry. Last of all came the big-wheeled creaking wagons, loaded not only with the usual supplies and equipment of war, but also with thousands of loaves of bread, hard, flat, heavy loaves made from ling, the corn-like grain which was the staple cereal of the region. "'Bread, sire?' Tedric had asked, wonderingly, when Fagon had first broached the idea. Men on the march lived on meat, a straight, unrelieved diet of meat for weeks and months on end. And, all too frequently, not enough of that to maintain weight and strength. They expected nothing else. An occasional fist-sized chunk of bread was sheerest luxury. "'Bread! A whole loaf each man a day?' Aye, Fagon had chuckled in reply. All farmsmen along the way will have ready my fraction of ling, and Schillen will at need buy more. To each man a loaf each day, and all the meat he can eat. Tis why we go up the Midvale, where farmers all breed savage dogs to guard their fields against hordes of game. Such feeding will be noised abroad." Canst think of a better device to lure Tagad's ill-fed mercenaries to our standards? Tedric couldn't. There is no need to dwell in detail upon the army's long, slow march. Leaving the city of Lampore, it moved up the Lotar River, through the spectacularly scenic gorge of the coast range, and into the Middle Valley. That incredibly lush and fertile region, which, lying between the low Umpasseurs on the east and the coast range on the west, comprised roughly a third of Lomar's area. Into and through the straggling hamlet of Bonoy, lying at the junction of the Midvale River and the Lotar, then straight north through the timberlands and meadows of the Midvale's west bank. Game was, as Fagan had said, incredibly plentiful outnumbering by literally thousands to one both domestic animals and men. Buffalo-like lapida, moose-like rolatoes, pig-like axides, the largest and among the tastiest of Lomar's game animals, were so abundant that one good hunter could kill in half an hour enough to feed a century for a day. Hence most of the hunter's time was spent in their traveling dryers, preserving meat against a coming day of need. On, up the bluely placid Lake Midvale, a full day's march long and half that in width, past the chain lakes, strung on the river like beads on a string, past Lake Ardo, and on toward Lake Middlemarch and the Middlemarch Castle, which was to be Tedric's official residence henceforth. As the main body passed the head of the lake, a couple of scouts brought in a runner bursting with news. "'Thanks, Sarpedion, sire. I had not to run to Lampore to reach you,' he cried, dropping to his knees. "'Middlemarch Castle is besieged. Herlo of the Marches is slain.' And he went on to tell a story of onslaught and slaughter. "'And the raiders worn iron,' Fagon remarked, when the tale was done. "'Sarlonian iron, no doubt.' "'Aye, sire, but how couldst—' "'No matter. Take him to the rear. Feed him.' "'You expected this raid, sire,' Tedric said, rather than asked, after scouts and runner had disappeared. "'Aye, 
'twas no raid, but the first skirmish of a war. No fool Tagad of Sarlon, nor Issian of Davos, barbarian though he is. They knew what loomed, and struck first. The only surprise was Herlow's death. He had my direct orders not to do battle against any force, however slight-seeming, but to withdraw forthwith into the castle, which was to be kept stocked to withstand a siege of months. This keeps me from boiling him in oil for stupidity, incompetence, and disloyalty." Fagon frowned in thought, then went on. Were there forces that appeared not? Surely not. Tagad would not split his forces at all seriously, tis but to annoy me. Or perhaps they are mostly barbarians, despite the Sarlonian iron. To harry and flee is no doubt their aim. But for Lomar's good not one of them should escape. Knows the upper midvale, Tedric, above the lake? But little, sire, a few miles only. I was there but once. Tis enough. Take half the royal guard and a century of bowmen. Cross the midvale at the ford three miles above us here. Go up and around the lake. The upper midvale is fordable almost anywhere at this season, so stay far enough away from the lake that none see you. Cross it, swing in a wide circle toward the peninsula on which sits Middlemarch Castle, and in three days? Three days will be ample, sire. Three days from tomorrow's dawn, exactly as the top rim of the sun clears the meadow, make your charge out of the covering forest, with your archers spread to pick off all who seek to flee. I will be on this side of the peninsula. Between us there'll be ground like ling. None shall get away." Fagon's assumptions, however, were slightly in error. When Tedric's riders charged, at the crack of the indicated dawn, they did not tear through a motley horde of half-armored, half-trained barbarians. Instead, they struck two full centuries of Sarlon's heaviest armor. And Fagon the king fared worse. At first sight of that brilliant golden armor, a solid column of armored knights formed as though by magic and charged it at full gallop. Fagon fought, of course, fought as his breed had always fought at first on horse, with his terrible sword, under the trenchant edge of which night after night died. His horse dropped, slaughtered, his sword was knocked away. But afoot, the war-axe chained to his steel belt by links of super-steel was still his. He swung and swung and swung again, again and again, and with each swing an enemy ceased to live. But sheer weight of metal was too much. Finally, still swinging his murderous weapon, Fagon of Lomar went flat on the ground. At the first assault on their king, Tedric with his sword and Skyro with his hammer had gone starkly berserk. Skyro was nearer, but Tedric was faster and stronger and had the better horse. "'Drigor!' he yelled, thumping his steed's sides with his armored legs and rising high in his stirrups. Nostrils flaring, the mighty beast raged forward, and Tedric struck as he had never struck before. Eight times that terrific blade came down, and eight men and eight horses died. Then suddenly, Tedric never did know how it happened, since Drigor was later found uninjured, he found himself afoot. No place for sword this, but made to order for axe. 
Hence, driving forward as resistlessly as though a phalanx of iron were behind him, he hewed his way toward his sovereign. Thus he was near at hand when Phagon went down. So was Doty Skyro, and by the time the Sarlonians had learned that sword nor axe nor hammer could cut or smash that gold-seeming armor, fury personified was upon them. Tedric straddled his king's head, Skyro his feet, and back to back two of Lomar's mightiest armsmasters wove circular webs of flying steel through which it was sheerest suicide to attempt to pass. Thus battle raged until the last armored foeman was down. "'Are hurt, sire?' Tedric asked anxiously as he and Skyro lifted Fagon to his feet. "'Nay, my masters-at-arms,' the monarch gasped, still panting for breath. "'Bruised merely, and somewhat winded.' He opened his visor to let more air in, then, as he regained control, he shook off the supporting hands and stood erect under his own power. "'I fear me, Tedric, that you and that vixen daughter of mine were in some sense right. Methinks I may be, oh, the veriest trifle, out of condition. But the battle is almost over. Did any escape?' None had. "'Tis well. Tedric, I know not how to honor. Honor me no farther, sire, I beg. Hast honored me already far more than I deserved, or ever will. Or at least at the moment. There may be later, perhaps. That is, a thing. He fell silent. A thing? Fagon grinned broadly. I know not whether Rowan will be overly pleased at being called so, but twill be borne in mind nonetheless. Now you, Skyro, Lord Skyro now, and henceforth, and all your line. Lord of what, I will not now say, but when we have taken Sarlo, you and all others shall know. My thanks, sire, and my obeisance, said Skyro. Shillin, with me to my pavilion. I am weary and sore, and would fain rest. As the two lords of the realm, so lately commoners, strode away to do what had to be done. "'Neither of us feels any nobler than ever, I know,' Skyro said. "'But in one way tis well, very well indeed.' "'The Lady Tricy, eh? The wind does set so, then, as I thought. Aye, for long and long. It wondered me often your choice of the Lady Rowan over her.' Howbeit, twill be a wondrous thing to be your brother-in-law as well as in arms. Tedric grinned companionably, but before he could reply they had to separate and go to work. The king did not rest long. The heralds called Tedric in before half his job was done. "'What thinkst you, Tedric, should be next?' Fagon asked. First, punish Devos, sire,' Tedric snarled. "'Backtrack them.' Storm high pass if defended. Raise half the steps with sword and torch. Drive them the full length of their country and into the northern sound. Interesting, my impetuous young blade, but not at all practical, Fagon countered. Hast considered the matter of time? The avalanches of rocks doubtless set up and ready to sweep those narrow paths? What Tagad would be doing while we cavort through the wastelands? Tedric deflated almost instantaneously. "'Nay, sire,' he admitted sheepishly, 
I thought not of any such. "'Tis the trouble with you. You know not how to think." Fagon was deadly serious now. "'Tis a hard thing to learn, impossible for many. But learn it you must if you end not as Herlow ended. Also, take heed. Disobey my orders but once, as Herlow did, and you hang in chains from the highest battlement of your own castle Middlemarch until your bones rot apart and drop into the lake." His monarch's vicious threat, or rather promise, left Tedric completely unmoved. "'Tis what I would deserve, sire, or less, but no fear of that. Stupid I may be, but disloyal, nay, sire, your word always has been and always will be my law." Not stupid, Tedric, but lacking in judgment, which is not as bad, since the condition is, if you care enough to make it so, remediable. You must care enough, Tedric. You must learn, and quickly, for much more than your own life is at hazard. The younger man stared questioningly, and the king went on. My life, the lives of my family, and the future of all Omar he said quietly. "'In that case, sire, wilt learn, and quickly,' Tedric declared, and as days and weeks went by, he did. End of Part 3